Economics Out Loud. A project of the New Economic School with the support from the Russian Agricultural Bank. Back in the 1880s, Russian Minister of Internal Affairs Mikhail Loris Melikov described the situation in the country in the following way. Demand is increasing, the value of the ruble is falling, prices are growing, and there are more and more taxes. More than a century later, the situation he described is very reminiscent of our days. How is that Russian authorities and society have been facing the same problems for centuries? And are we carrying with us the legacy of the past? And why do we have to face the same problem of unfinished or poorly implemented reforms? For example, the abolition of serfdom. How does the past affect our society and economy now? We will discuss the legacy of serfdom and other issues with the professor of New Economic School, co-director of the Joint Bachelor's Program of the New Economic School and the Higher School of Economics, and Markevich in the project Economics Out Loud. Andrei, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. It is obvious that over the past 200 years in Russia, many problems have remained unresolved. Which problems today are owed to the system of serfdom? Hello, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to join the project. And let me start with an answer to your first question. Of course, there have been many changes in the economy over the last 200 years, and most of them happened for the better. On average, people have become richer, and judging by economic indicators, wealth has risen by an order of magnitude. However, if we compare Russia with the most developed countries, there is still a problem. We see it in the statistics of gross domestic product. Like 200 years ago, Russia still lags behind the most developed countries in terms of GDP per capita. Moreover, the size of this lag has not changed much. Over the past century, for which we have relatively reliable data, GDP per capita in Russia has been fluctuating in the region of 30 to 50% of GDP per capita in the United States. And this is probably the main economic problem that has not yet been solved. Andrei, how much, in your opinion, the abolition of serfdom and the subsequent land reform contributed to the 1917 revolution? And is it possible to say that the reform became the main reason for the discontent among the Russian people? Now the authorities are postponing reforms. And are they running the risk of problems being accumulated due to the snowball effect? That's a good question. The revolution is a complex phenomenon, and there is no one simple explanation for the Russian Revolution of 1917. We can say that the economic difficulties of the First World War, which appeared due to the weaknesses of the Russian economy and the general unpreparedness for a big war, uh, contributed to the revolution. At the same time, we can definitely assert that serfdom had a negative impact on economic development and hindered economic growth. Thus, it contributed to the revolution in this way. Some parallels perhaps can be seen in the modern situation. Returning to serfdom, together with Yekaterina Zhuravskaya, we wrote a paper, The Economic Effects of the Abolition of Serfdom, Evidence from the Russian Empire. We analyzed data on grain yields in the European provinces of the Russian Empire in the 19th century, before and after the abolition of serfdom. And we find that yields began to grow rapidly after the emancipation of the peasants. We also find that during serfdom, the provinces with the highest share of serfs had lower yields. And that is what is the most important in terms of causality. These provinces demonstrated faster growth after the abolition of 
of serfdom. We also find a similar development pattern for industrial output indicators. And finally, we analyze the height of army recruits and find out that recruits born after the abolition of serfdom grew taller in those provinces where there were more serfs. It should be clarified that a person's height is an accumulated indicator of nutrition received in childhood and adolescence. The dynamics of height of draftees shows that after the abolition of serfdom, not only did the economy begin to develop faster, but consumption has also improved. Summarizing all these findings, we can say with confidence that serfdom had a negative impact on economic growth and living standards in Imperial Russia. It's also necessary to mention that the abolition of serfdom as a reform consisted of two parts, the liberation of serfs and land reform. The liberation happened relatively fast. However, land reform dragged on for many years and its implementation also varied across regions. From our point of view, it is necessary to distinguish these two components. We find that the liberation of peasants and then changing their legal relations with the landowner had a positive effect on economic development and on the growth of yields in particular. But the land reform reduced this positive effect. For peasants, the most important factor was that the landowner could no longer arbitrarily change their conditions of labour and their duties, like the number of days the peasants had to work for their landowners. This changed incentive for peasants. They got incentives to work harder without fearing that the results of their labour would later be confiscated by the landowner who could simply increase the duties. This generated a positive effect of emancipation. On the contrary, land reform strengthened the peasant commune. Many of its rules distorted incentives for peasant labour, thus negatively affecting productivity in agriculture that slowed down economic growth. Let's talk about the legacy of serfdom that exists today. There is an opinion that we are still facing the problems of unfinished reform. The migration policy is still not working well. Cities are poorly developed. There are many problems in the agriculture. In your opinion, is there a connection between serfdom and modern economic development? Could it be that the regions with more serfs in the past are less developed today? Indeed, such problems do exist. They also existed under serfdom, and it is logical to ask if there is a connection between present economic difficulties and the past. In the last 15 years, many studies on the long-term consequences of history and historical events appeared. Many of them use historical statistics and modern econometric techniques to analyze this data. These studies demonstrate that historical legacy determines to a substantial degree what can and cannot be done today. The events, institutions, and reforms of the distant past continue to influence the economic situation today. In respect to serfdom, these issues were examined in an interesting work by Johannes Bugel and Stephen Nafziger, in which they studied the connection between the geography of serfdom in the past and the welfare of citizens today in different regions of the former Russian Empire. To do this, they used data from modern surveys on personal spending and linked them with the prevalence of serfdom in the past. They studied the correlation between expenditures of modern households and the share of serfs in the district before the abolition of serfdom. It turns out that modern consumption in the regions with more serfs in the past is lower than the average, all things being equal. Today, the level of economic development is lower in the regions where there were more serfs and where serfdom was more developed. As Bugle and Nafziger suggest, the link arises from the fact that serfdom was hindering the development of cities as centers of economic activity. Indeed, serfdom imposed restrictions on the mobility of peasants and constrained their abilities to move into the city. The extent of these restrictions varied. The corvée system put more restrictions on peasants and they had fewer opportunities to work outside agriculture. 
Those who were on Quitrend had more choice and could engage in other businesses besides agriculture. Buggle and Nafsega found out that there is a strong inverse correlation between past serfdom and modern consumption. After the abolition of serfdom, regions with more developed cities continued to develop faster. In this way, the legacy of serfdom still affects development today. Can this problem be solved? Or will the legacy of serfdom always haunt us? This is a very difficult question, and I'm afraid I don't have a simple answer to it. I could give the following analogy. There is the so called Tobler's law in geography, which means that everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. In some sense, we can apply a similar analogy to history. Everything is connected with everything, but events that are relatively close in time are more connected with modernity than distant ones. In other words, the influence of the past exists, but decreases over time. Of course, there are other important factors. For example, besides the factors contributing to economic inequalities inherited from the past, there are also factors that produce the opposite effect. In the modern world, the spread of technology and the mobility of labor and capital helps to smoothen the diversity inherited from the past. And they generate the so-called convergence of development. We can say that the differences between the most developed countries have become smaller over the past 70 years. Especially quickly, these differences decreased in the countries of Western Europe during the post-war period in the second half of the 20th century. And now, in Europe, the countries are very similar to each other in the level of economic development, although this was not the case in the middle of the 20th century. Economists have also found many examples of regional convergence within countries. This is true for the United States as well. The least developed states in terms of GDP per capita uh, experienced faster economic growth in the 20th century. For Russia, this issue remains unexplored despite the presence of a large volume of historical statistical data largely because there is a problem with getting access to these historical statistics. To solve this problem, together with my Dutch colleague Heijs Kessler from the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam and a whole team of historians, we created an electronic archive of Russian historical statistics. The archive contains regional data on the economic and social history of Russia for five benchmark years, from the end of the 18th century to the present. The archive site has a very detailed description of where we got this data from, what sources we used, what was the methodology, etc. The final version of the archive with indicators of statistics on population, labor, agricultural development and industrial output is ready. Anyone can download the data from the site ristat.org. Using this data, I reconstructed a very important indicator of regional development, regional GDP. I did that for all provinces of the Russian Empire for one year at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, or more precisely for 1897, which was a population census year. If we compare the results of this reconstruction with modern development indicators, we can find out whether the differences in development between regions disappear over time, what is the influence of history on what is happening today, and so on. My calculations show that on the one hand, less economically developed regions in the late 19th to the early 20th centuries showed higher growth rates in the 20th century, so they gradually caught up with the most developed regions, reducing the gap. Historical inequality gradually faded away. On the other hand, my reconstruction shows that the correlation in regional development still remains. To sum up, the heritage of the past, although it is decreasing, is still present in our lives today. In other words, this is very much in line with Tobler's law in history. 
To reduce inequality, there should probably be some kind of special policy to create equal opportunities for development for all regions. It should mitigate problems inherited from the past. And if we look at other countries, let's say the USA, where the abolition of slavery also left an imprint, nowadays there's still social problems, and one of the results is the Black Lives Matter movement. Are they related to slavery in America, and is there a positive example of the transition from forced to free labor? In our joint work with Yekaterina Zhuravskaya, which I already mentioned today, we find that the abolition of serfdom had a positive effect on the development of agriculture, industry, and the living standards of the peasants. So this is a positive example of the transition from forced to free labor. In this respect, the situation in the United States was different. Nobel laureate in economics Robert Fogel showed in one of his works that slavery in the southern states was as effective as free labor in the north. Fogel made this conclusion from the analysis of a lot of statistical materials. However, in the 1970s, when Fogel presented his findings, they generated a lot of controversies. There were many critics who confused ethical issues with economic ones. Of course, from a moral point of view, slavery is unacceptable. But Fogel studied only its economic aspects. There is a clear difference between Russia and the United States that should be explained. The difference in efficiency is likely because of where forced labor was used. In the US, slaves were used mainly on cotton plantations, while in Russia, serfs were mostly harvesting grain crops. Fogel pointed out that the slave owners had every incentive to organize the production efficiently. They were able to do this by virtue of process technology, uh, creating special cotton-picking teams and gangs. They were able to monitor them and were able to make slave labor relatively productive. Such organization of labor turned out to be effective from an economic point of view. In Russia, it was impossible to do something similar since grain production is organized differently from cotton production. If we talk about long-term consequences, it is clear that slavery had its impact on the problems that exist today, and the BLM movement is a prime example of this. Inequality exists in America, and economists and economic historians demonstrated that one of the key problems is unequal access to education. It is a problem that was inherited from the past. It goes deep into the history of slavery in America. Another question that I would like to ask you is about peasant commune in Russia. In the beginning of the 20th century, Russian Prime Minister Pyotr Stolypin tried to destroy it but failed. Soviet authorities simply transformed it into a collective farm, which was so bad that every peasant dreamt of fleeing it. Do we see the historical consequences of peasant communes now, and do they constitute a problem? Does this affect, among other things, the attitude towards private property, to the protection of which we are generally not accustomed. Yes, uh, the peasant commune and communal land ownership were a very interesting set of institutions. Although you compared it with the collective farm, I'm not sure about that. In my opinion, these are different institutions, because there was much more coercion in the collective farm and much less freedom for peasants than in a traditional commune. Peasant communes existed not only in Russia. Originally, it was created in Europe as anti-catastrophe insurance for its members and helped them to get through difficult times. Communes were able to reduce inequality among its members. Uh, it made everyone poorer, but it helped to reduce the risk of hunger for every member of the commune. In many countries, the commune introduced the so-called system of dividing land into strips. In order to equalize the incomes of members, they were dividing the land into plots of equal quality, and inside these plots, uh, strips were further cut out for each member of the commune. 
Accordingly, somewhere a peasant was getting a strip of good soil, and somewhere not very good soil, and so on. And everyone turned out to be more or less equal. And this helped reduce the possibility of crop failures since no one was extremely poor. The pattern also solved a number of local weather shocks. If in one place it was raining, but in another it wasn't, then a peasant had plots in different places, some with a relatively decent harvest, while in another it was not so good, but then that was not their only plot. This is the basic reason why peasants created the commune. However, such a system came with a cost in economic terms. It produced lower yields. Every peasant had to coordinate his decisions with others about what, where and when to grow, when to sow, etc. In some cases, it was impossible to use the land for pasture or to graze livestock. A neighbour might grow wheat on his strip and the livestock would simply eat the crop. There would be a conflict and it wouldn't end well. Paul Dower and I did an empirical study that showed that the problem of coordination within the commune in the Russian context of the early 20th century was quite serious and reduced the peasants' ability to try new technologies. Strips were narrow and in many places they were very small. In some regions, the Stalipin reform was implemented more actively and more peasants left the commune to become independent farmers. They stopped dividing lands into strips and consolidated their plots into larger units. In such regions, the yields grew faster. The ratio of pros and cons created by communal ownership, of course, was changing over time. Finally, the need for a commune disappeared. The problem of hunger became less acute. Other forms of insurance emerged. In the end, some financial institutions began to provide that insurance to peasants, and it was reasonable to abolish the commune because the cons began to outweigh the pros. It was a reason behind the Stolipin reform, but the authorities could not decide on it for a very long time because there were also other reasons involved. One of them was that any kind of reform with the redistribution of land is very unlikely to make everyone happy. It's difficult to avoid conflicts. Someone would always say that he is dissatisfied. He would feel that he lost, that the rules are dishonest, etc. At the same time, the existence of the commune for a long time created some certain concepts of private property and shaped ideas of what is honest or dishonest, etc. It can cause serious opposition and resistance to reform. This is exactly what happened during the Stalipin reform. There were many conflicts around its implementation. We know about the cases where peasants set fire to their neighbours' houses. Of course, it was extreme, though it happened pretty often during the implementation of the reform. Today, it is very interesting to see that the geography of positive and negative attitudes towards the privatization of the 1990s and attitudes towards the Stalipin reform in the past are close to each other. There's a positive correlation between these two characteristics. Together with Paul Dower, whom I've already mentioned, we wrote an article that shows exactly this. In the regions where there were more conflicts associated with the Stolypin reform, today there is a less favourable attitude towards the institution of private property, and people more often think that it is necessary to repeal the results of the privatisation of the 1990s. Our data does not give an explanation to that, though there might be two reasons. On the one hand, personal attitudes are caused by cultural factors. In some sense, attitudes towards private property are determined by culture. 
Another explanation is that the Stalipin reform and the problems during its implementation formed a negative attitude to any kind of privatization, and that somehow passed down through generations to our contemporaries and created their critical perceptions of the privatization of the 1990s. In any case, the historical experience of the commune, one way or another, through one channel or another, influences the attitude towards privatization today. And this is also important to take into account when choosing some kind of economic policy today. It's very interesting because there is a concept that public attitude towards privatization and private property and the protection of it defined by cultural codes. However, it turns out that this is not culture, but a very specific reform that simply did not go through very successfully. We have to keep in mind that there are variations in cultural norms across space. We studied not only Russia, but our data also referred to the entire European part of the Russian Empire, Belarus, Ukraine and Russia. These countries are culturally close, but there are also some quite significant differences. And what we do is studying the local differences in culture and historical experience and trying to find out how stable they are. Andrei, thank you very much for an interesting conversation. I think that it is a very interesting question for our listeners. How any government action changes society and reforms leave an imprint on future generations? They have to deal with the legacy of modern events, reforms and government decisions. We hope that our society will be able to overcome the consequences created by serfdom and the land reform that followed it, and we will successfully cope with it. It was the podcast Economic out loud. Listen to us at podcast hosting platforms and read us on social networks and on the website of the New Economic School. Okay. Сделано в CM Records. CM Records. Любая озвучка.